problem in your life? So a moment to think about that. What do you think is the biggest problem in your life? Um, no, and I, I mean that functionally. I don't mean the kind of like standard answer that you should give in a kind of nice Christian Bible study. I mean, what actually do you, do, do you invest most of your energy into, your time into, your resources into? Um, you wake up in the night, this is the thing that you go to. What is your biggest problem? Well, if you're struggling for options here, the internationalpsychologyclinic.com um, gives some suggested answers. Um, and it could be that your answer fits into one of these categories. Uh, a health crisis, workplace issues, emptiness, friendship issues, failure, financial crisis, career pressure, unfair treatment, inner peace, mental health issues. Um, it strikes me as a very kind of westernized, kind of comfortable list of things. And it doesn't feature things like the problem of war, that people are trying to kill me, or the problem of people trafficking, that people are trying to steal me, um, or, you know, floods or famines or anything like that. But, you know, there are some big contenders here. Um, and yet I think that today, as we look at our passage, we will find that our biggest problem in life is God. Our biggest problem in life is God. Let's have a look and see why that would be. Uh, when we were last in Isaiah, I suggested what Isaiah is doing in chapters 2 to 4 is this. Um, in the first part of chapter 2, um, he sets before the people a glorious future. Looks ahead to the end of days, to the, to the end of days when the Lord comes and puts everything right and it is beautiful and bright. Uh, our passage today deals with the fall of the proud. Uh, chapter 3, again, from a slightly different perspective, looks at the fall of the proud. But then chapter 4, just a little chapter, again points ahead to the glorious future. And it seems to me that what Isaiah is doing here is he's setting the, this contrast between the glorious future and the, the fall of the proud. He's trying to put that before the people in order to draw their trust to him, to the Lord. Um, last time we, ed we ended with verse 5. Um, look at verse 5 there. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This gloriously bright future has been set out and the people are called to live in the light of that great tomorrow today. And, and yet that kind of phrase, let's walk in the light of the Lord, if you just say it over and over again, it can sound a bit like sloganeering, become a bit of a platitude. And you maybe get it printed on a t-shirt, couldn't you? Walk in the light of the Lord. You have it on your mug, you have it on a cap. But what does it actually do in life? It can sound like a slogan. Now, I used to work with this old engineer. And whenever anybody said the word expert, he would immediately interject with a raised finger. Uh, an X is a has-been, and a spurt is a drip under pressure. So over and over again. Um, meaningless, really, isn't it? Um, verse 5 is a verse that looks both ways. It wraps up verses 1 to 4, and it starts verses 6 to 22. In fact, verse 6 begins with a connecting word. Uh, unfortunately, not given in the NIV translation, but the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, both have this connecting word at the beginning of verse 6, and it is the word for. I just want to feel the crunch of gears as you go from verse 5 into verse 6. I'll put it on the screen. <clears throat> feel this. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you, Lord, have abandoned your people the descendants of Jacob. 
You feel that? This, this, this tomorrow is going to come when God is going to put everything right. And as the first verses say, the nations will stream together to enjoy being with God. And there'll be this peace, this deep peace like never before. And this transformation where the tools of death will be turned into tools of life. And all our aching, satisfied and God in our midst shining so bright. But walking in the light is not a done deal. Imagine as Isaiah preached this to those inhabitants of Jerusalem, their hackles would begin to rise. He's, he's kind of set them up a bit. So there's this great, bright tomorrow, but it's not your tomorrow. Now, the call to walk in the light of the Lord is urgent because the Lord has abandoned his people. And, and this people, they don't care about that. They, they don't care about the fact the Lord has abandoned them because their lives have got so full of other things. It could be this morning that that's where this passage pinches for us. Lives that are so full, breathless with busyness. Our lives are saturated. We're always connected. We're always on. Um, We get so wrapped up in life in this world. and, And it could be this morning that the call to walk in the light of the Lord is urgent for us. Urgent. Because maybe we don't care too much about it. In this section of Isaiah that we're looking at, he he describes the problem facing these people. And as he does that, he interweaves repeated refrains that he kind of builds on and adds to and varies. And there's a building momentum in the passage, a heat that rises, all trying to get the people to wake up to their predicament. All up to their predicament so that in verse 22, he can say, stop it. Walking in the light means that something has to stop. So what is the problem going on here now why would the lord abandon his people now again sadly the niv misses a little connecting word in the middle of verse six Uh, it comes before the words they are full Uh, translated in the esv and the csb as because because they are full the cause of the lord abandoning his people is that they have abandoned him and and how have they done that Well, in verses 6 to 8, it describes how they have filled themselves with four things. Four things that they have replaced God with in their lives. Let's have a look. First of all, they have replaced God with superstitions. Superstitions is a negative word. That's not the word they would use to describe it themselves. They would say, no, we're embracing other traditions. Isaiah says, no, they are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divinations like the Philistines who live to the west. East and west, they're absorbing practices from every side, embracing pagan customs. And these pagan customs, um, all, all these pagan customs with their variety, were based on the idea that if you want to succeed, it depends on your ability to manipulate the gods. To control your destiny, you control the deity. We could hold that up as a mirror to ourselves, couldn't we? We could ask, well, the world in which we live, what does it tell us we have to do if we want to be happy? What does the world tell us we have to do to be successful or to be secure? No shortage of answers, are there? You need to get this job or you need to buy this product or invest in this or have this relationship or stop that relationship. All these things you have to do. And what does the world around us tell us is most important? You notice that random list from the random psychology site said nothing about God. 
Because all the time, in all of our lives, whether you're at school or at work or at home or, or, or watching the telly or, or reading the news, uh, there are values being pushed upon us, telling us what matters most, what you need to do to get ahead. Uh, the world we live in is full of pagan customs. The world is full of it. The question is, are we? Now, are we more in tune with the way the world gets things done or the way of the Lord? Maybe you you faced a challenge in your workplace. Is is the way that you respond to that challenge just like everyone else? Now, what would be different if you were following the ways of the Lord? Well, these ancient people, they are filled up. They have no room for anything else. The ways of the Lord, that's old news. So they have moved on. They've replaced and forgotten. That's the first thing. They have replaced God with superstition. Secondly, they've replaced God with wealth. See, this message comes to a people enjoying prosperity. These are the best of times. You see, it says, um, verse 7, their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. What could possibly go wrong with that? That's why they don't need to think about the Lord. They can forget about the Lord because they're rich. Oh, prosperity is such a snare, isn't it? Prosperity gives an illusion of being self-made. A successful person can stand back and look at their life with a smug grin and say, I did all of this. My cleverness, my hard work, my ingenuity, uh, my, my, my future is secured by my money that I put into my bank. It's all done by me. Uh, ages before this, uh, the ancestors of these people were warned when they entered into the land and when they prosper in the land and they look at all the, what they have, they should not forget where it came from. Not forget that even the strength to work, even the ability to create wealth is not self-made. No one is self-made. It's all given. This has been long forgotten though. They're, they're happy to, to take the gift and to forget there is a giver. It's all come from them, they think. The land is full of these riches. For us today, we live in one of the most prosperous places, in one of the most prosperous times in all history. So easy for us to rely on our wealth. So easy for us to think we don't need God much because we have accumulated the resources we need to cover what's costing. Easy to replace trust in the Lord with our wealth. The the third thing. They've replaced God with might. Middle of verse 7, their land is full of horses. There is no end to the chariots. It's not against horses, but the horses are needed um, for the army. To have a land full of horses means you have a big army. And these people at this time, they weren't worried about invasion. Other places should be worried about them because they've got this huge standing army. They didn't need to say their prayers at night because they'd already done God's job for him. They had made themselves safe. It wasn't quite God's way of doing things, but it's working out pretty well for them. Replace God with might. Fourthly, they've replaced God with idols, verse 8. Their land is full of idols. It's a derogatory word for idols here. A a, a nothingness. They've made these nothing things. Isaiah says, they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. It's bonkers, isn't it, when you put it like that? They make these idols, they're the creators of the idols, and then they worship what they've made. It's actually so appropriate, though, because if they worship what they have made, what is it they're actually worshipping? Now, if if, if I happen to make an amazing loaf of bread and then go on about how amazing it is, 
Am I praising the bread? No. They're worshipping themselves. So Isaiah makes that analysis. See, the Lord has abandoned them because they've abandoned him. How have they abandoned him? Well, they've replaced him with superstitions, wealth, might, and idols. But it's all summed up in verse 11. All summed up, as he says, speaks of the eyes of the arrogant human pride. It's pride. This is man thinking he's big enough to take care of himself without the Lord. We don't like proud people. Um, We don't like arrogant people. Maybe you can think of some arrogant people now. The problem with pride, though, is that we, we see it quite clearly in others, but we struggle to see it so well in ourselves. Oh, and C.S. Lewis, he gave the, the radio lectures, which turned into the book Mere Christianity. He wrote a chapter called The Great Sin. The Great Sin, which is all about pride. And he said, the more we have in ourselves, the more we dislike in others. And he gave a test, a test to find out how proud you are. So if you want to find out how proud you are, you ask yourself this. How much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? That's what pride does. It wants me at the center. Me lifted up. Pride wants to bring the spotlight back to me. We can be proud of our achievements. We can be proud of our failures. We can be uh, proud of being heroes or proud of being victims. But it's all about me and about me in a particular way. A Christian counsellor writes that the problem he most encounters in his counselling is the problem of pride, but no one ever comes to him for that reason. So it says usually people come to him because everybody else is the problem. And people come to him with this kind of caricatured idea that somehow the world is kind of chaotically swirling around this one untouchable individual in the middle. And the counsellor says when his questions gently begin to move towards that centre... They're met with hurt and confusion and often downright indignation. How dare you question me? It's them. It's they are the problem, not me. Pride affects all of us. Sometimes we're too proud to admit it. Now, these um, ancient Israelites, like these ancient Israelites, we, we want to believe that we can do what it takes to make life work, that it comes from us, that we can achieve our safety, or we just spiral into despair because we can't do it, but it's all pride. It's all about me at the center. And pride is such a snare for us, all of us. It's such a problem. I'm just going to pause on it for a little bit longer, examine our hearts a bit on this. How does pride affect us? Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian from a few hundred years ago, he wrote about seven symptoms of pride. That's what he said. These are the symptoms of pride. Fault-finding. Very generous towards our our own faults, but spend a lot of time thinking about the faults of others. A harsh spirit. Quickly irritated by others. You have no patience with them. Superficiality. Far more concerned about what others think than about the actual reality. We give the the appearance, that's what we're concerned for, but less concerned about what's actually going on. Defensiveness. Maybe you're feeling that a bit now. I know that I am as I look at these things. Somebody points out our wrong, we start to to prickle. We, We quickly begin to list the excuses. 
a presumption before God. We have a just kind of brashness about our salvation, not humble assurance, but we just assume all these things as we come to God, or we have no confidence before God because we're fixed on us, not on Him. Desperation for attention. Now, somebody wrote about this, about this point and said, desperation for attention. Maybe it's being unable to say no to anyone because we need to be needed. Maybe it looks like obsessively thirsting for marriage or fantasizing about a better marriage because you're hungry to be adored. Maybe it looks like being haunted by your desire for the right car or the right house or the right title at work, all because you seek the glory that comes from men, not God. You know, maybe, just to speak personally on this, maybe it's thinking this. This is crazy even to say out loud, but uh, the greatest preacher of the 20th century was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones died in 1981, which happened to be the same year that I was born. Um, Perhaps that's not a coincidence, says my sick thinking. Uh, maybe like Van Gogh, unappreciated in his own lifetime, but uh, when I'm gone, uh, my, my wonderful preaching will be discovered. Uh, people will speak about my unique gifting, uh, the, the special gift I am to the church, and I'll be celebrated. That's ugly, isn't it, when you put it out loud? Really ugly. It's good to get this stuff out into the cold light of day. See them for what they are. Desperation for attention. Seventhly, neglecting others. We connect with those who we can get something from, but we ignore everyone else. In our passage, the Lord abandoned these people because they abandoned him. They abandoned him by filling their lives with God replacements, but all the replacements were forms of self-reliance. My wealth, my might, my idols. There's no room for God. There's no need for God in my life that's so full of these things. And and the thing we have to really grasp with this is that it is going well for them. Now, as as Isaiah speaks this to them, you you can almost imagine them just kind of scratching their heads and saying, but but what's the problem with all this? Yeah, we are are full of these things. But it's working out pretty well for us. We are rich, we are powerful, we're happy. Now, how is this pride such a problem? It might be that some of us here think along the same lines as we begin to explore this. Now, maybe you're a bit younger. You're not quite sure whether you want to really throw everything into following Jesus. You want to give a bit more time to work out life for yourself first. Maybe you're a bit older and you think, well, I've got this far. Why change anything now? Maybe somewhere in the middle, you, you realize there might be some stuff that's not right, but you've not really got time to stop and think about it. Maybe, maybe to some extent, all of us hear it and think, well, okay, yeah, we might be a bit proud, but, but how is it such a problem? As C.S. Lewis defines pride like this. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. See, the, the problem isn't pride as a kind of isolated thing. The problem is that pride is connected to God in all the wrong ways. And the problem isn't really pride. The problem is God. And the passage we have kind of circles and builds as it goes through. If you, just, if you look down at me at the text, look at verse 9. We'll just kind of follow it a little bit. So something of a kind of summary, a kind of conclusion in verse 9. 
And so people brought low, everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. What's all that about? Well, verse 10 to 11, expand on that, saying the Lord is going to appear. People are going to flee. That's the cause of those being brought low, the human pride being brought low. Only the Lord is exalted, and it will all happen in that day. Verses 12 to 18, expand again, picking up on this day, this day of the Lord, the day in store. And it is a day for all, says verse 12. That that little phrase, for all, occurs ten times. Um, I think probably better translated in the ESV and CSB again, um, not as for all, but against all. A day against all. The Lord is against all. A lot of things he's against on that day that are listed here. But it's all wrapped up again in verse 17 with the arrogance of man brought low, pride brought down, and the Lord alone exalted. Verse 18, the idols disappear. Then verse 19 to 21 expands again, zooming in on the people who are fleeing because the Lord appears. What do we make of it? Well, let's just pick up a few of those repeated phrases that hold this passage together as we work through what is going on here. First of all, this one. The fearful presence of the Lord. God is going to appear. Verses 1 to 4 celebrates God appearing, but there he's appearing with his saving, redemptive presence to restore the goodness of everything. Verses 6 to 22 warns about the Lord appearing, but appearing in terror. You see, we said when we started looking at Isaiah that what the book of Isaiah does, it brings, to God, it brings God to us in his indescribable greatness. God is the Holy One of Israel. We can't squash him into neatly defined categories. We dare not put any limit upon him. But the question that runs through the whole book is, what is God really like? Well, this is what God is really like, part of it. In verse 12, that the Lord Almighty has this day in store. A day when, when, when the fearful presence of the Lord will be here. He will appear in terrifying glory. There will come a day when all of us will meet God And the fear would melt the skin from our bones. The fearful presence of the Lord. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This is a truth that is so obvious and at the same time so forgotten. God is God. Only God is God. Unchangeably supreme. He is splendid in his majesty. God is, is that which, he's greater than that which we could possibly imagine or conceive. He is always more than what we could ever kind of come up with ourselves. God alone sits in the category of creator. All by himself. He exists of himself. That there is nothing else that he depends upon. He is utterly independent. And everything else comes from him. There is nothing necessary apart from God. The whole universe is not necessary. Only God is necessary. And when God is exalted, then all creation finds its place and its worth and its happiness under him. If anything other than God were exalted, the whole fabric of existence would fall apart. Of course, God should be exalted. Of course, God alone should be exalted. Now, what else could could stand up to compete with him? What else could stand up to try and oppose him or or kind of take some of his glory? 
And you set up the competition. What are we going to have? We'll have God in this corner and we'll have man in this corner. That's not a fair fight, is it? Who is better, God or man? It's a stupid question, isn't it? Only God. Of course, God alone should be exalted. It is so obvious. It's not quite so easy on a Monday morning when the week rushes on us like an avalanche, is it? No, today there are many attempts to dethrone God, many attempts to put other things into God's place, but to put anything into God's place is just an inherently unstable condition. There will come a day, the day of the Lord Almighty, when the eternal stability of all things will be seen and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so therefore he is on that day against all, as verse 12 says, listing these things out against all, against all What does it say, verse 12? The proud and the lofty against all that is exalted, against all the cedars of Lebanon, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the towering mountains, against all the high hills. It's figurative language at this point. Picking out the kind of things that the people would have looked at and said, oh, they're the great things. They are the things that cannot be moved. As I say, but even those things cannot stand on that day. The subtext What makes you think that your pride will stand? Verse 15, the Lord is against all, every lofty tower, every fortified wall. The man-made means of protection cannot protect you from the Lord. Verse 16, the Lord is against all, every trading ship, every stately vessel. Your commercial strength and your enterprise, your trade and prosperity cannot protect you from the Lord. Well, what about your idols? Can they protect you? Verse 18, what idols? They're gone. What does that mean for the proud? Well, the next phrase to pick up on is that human pride is brought low. And when the Lord appears on that day, he will appear as an utter terror to the proud. Now, these people comfortable today, successful even. But Isaiah is pointing them to a day when they will be seen for what they are And they will meet the Lord. They will meet the same Lord they have tried to rub out of their lives. The same Lord they have refused. The same Lord they have remade in their own image and replaced and ignored. Isaiah cries to them. Verse 10, he's imagining that day and he says, Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. Now it's irony really. They can't actually hide from God. When he appears though, they will want the ground to swallow them up. And when he appears, they'll be trying to hide in the ground, literally the dust, the, the, the death stuff. That's a better option than facing the terror of the Lord Almighty. Now, verse 19 expands on this. People will flee to the caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. There'll be nowhere to hide, but they will wish with all their heart they could melt into the dirt to escape. And their idols, these nothing things they have made, they made them out of silver and gold. They put their, their, their wealth into these, these rubbish things. On that day, they will realize how foolish they have been. So verse 20, they will throw them to the moles and the bats. It'll be too late. The Lord will have come in his fearful presence to shake the earth. That's why verse 9 says, do not forgive them. On that day, at that point, they cannot be forgiven. 
See, when that day comes, it will be too late. There will only be desperate but pointless attempts to be swallowed into the ground. You see, Isaiah is pleading here. That these, these complacent and comfortable, proud people who don't think they need the Lord. Isaiah is saying, walk in the light of the Lord. Because the Lord has abandoned you. Because you abandoned him. And if you don't turn back to him, all of this will happen. One day you will meet the fury of his holy majesty and the fear will break you. On that day when the wrath of God comes, you cannot escape it. If you are to escape it, you must escape it now. If they're to walk in the light of the Lord, there are some things that have to stop. Verse 22. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? How silly pride is. Trusting mere humans, humans that are here today, gone tomorrow, that fade and fall like the flowers. And the life that humans have, the breath in them, it's given by God, it's taken by God. Why? Trust mere humans. The same appeal comes to us today. If we are to walk in the light of the Lord, we must stop trusting stupid things, especially ourselves. Zion wants to wake these people up to, to, to say you've got to, to walk in the light of the Lord means, means to live today in light of the great future day. On the day when the Lord alone is exalted and all that is raised against him will fall down. Now all the success they feel they have today is put in a clearest perspective when the light of tomorrow falls on it. And what matters that they have a land full of treasure? What matters that they have a great army to hide behind if on the day of the Lord they're exposed as empty? Stop trusting in mere humans. And practically speaking, to take a step towards this is to take to heart that all that you have is a free gift of grace. Every moment you live, every strength you have, every ability, every opportunity, everything that comes to you comes as a gift and gifts are to be received with thanks to the giver. But, but let's not miss the energy of this. Now, what, what, what is God saying to this people? He, he's told them that they have this glorious bright future but they need to trust him for it and their pride stands in the way. And God doesn't want their pride to stand in the way. Verses 1 to 4, the Lord has said he wants them to be with him. That's the whole point of it. He wants them to come to him and live in happiness forever. And so verse 5, walk in the light of the Lord. Verse 6 to 22, don't let your pride stop you getting in on it. So the Lord is holding the gift out to them, but their arms are crossed. Too proud to receive. And so to help them, he's warning them of the dire consequences of keeping their arms crossed in self-reliance. Now again, C.S. Lewis says that God forbids pride because he wants you to know him. He forbids pride because he wants you to have him. He says, God, he is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment, the moment of knowing him possible. Trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up and strutting about like the little idiots we are. Come, come, says verse 5. Let us walk in the light of the Lord, which means stop trusting mere humans. 
I think it's really hard for us to feel the urgency of this. Uh, especially when our lives are okay-ish. Uh, especially when our lives are so full of things. Now, Isaiah says to this people, that the day of the Lord Almighty, when, when the Lord Almighty appears in terror and the splendor of his majesty rising to shake the earth, including you, that day must define you. It's the same message that comes to us. We must reckon with the terrifying reality of God's judgment against pride. The day of the Lord must define how we live this day. But I think it's just hard, hard for us to, to reckon with that, isn't it? I, I don't know, as you hear it this morning, it can feel just a bit far, a bit distant, a bit kind of unreal even. We're quickly distracted, quickly with, we find it hard to, to grapple with it. Quickly we slouch back into the couch of our comforts and nothing really changes. Now what will help us reckon with that day so that we might live this day? Well, next week is Easter. Uh, As we kind of come to a close and begin to think about coming to the table, uh, we're going to hold this passage in Isaiah in our minds, but we're going to turn our thoughts towards the Lord Jesus in Easter week. And, and watch what Jesus did with this truth. Now, the truth that gives to, this given to us in Isaiah 2 is we must reckon with the terrifying reality of God's judgment. How did Jesus reckon with that? Now, after the supper, uh, Jesus led his disciples to the familiar place, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Matthew tells us that in the garden, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And he went a little further off by himself and he fell on the ground and he prayed. And as he prayed, he repeatedly said, Father, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. This is an awful moment. Now here we have the Son of God who is worthy of the adoration of all of heaven's angels. The infinitely majestic God in human nature crumpled on the cold ground. And what is he asking in his prayer? What's he asking when he asks for the cup to be taken? The plan that God had from before the beginning of time. The very reason for the Son of God to become man and live on earth. The whole mission of Jesus was to take that cup. So why at this point does he ask that the cup is taken away? At this point, is he having second thoughts? Is it right for Jesus to ask for the cup to be taken? I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong of him at all to be asking. I don't think he's having second thoughts. I think that we have here in this moment, Jesus has this one overwhelming thought of how desirable it would be to escape the chasm of horror that yawns before him. You see, that cup is the curse of God. That cup is the judgment of God against sin. 
And this here we have the holy Jesus in his perfect humanity understanding what that cup meant. And his overwhelming desire was to escape the weight of wrath contained in that cup. A guy called Hugh Martin said, Is it not unutterably desirable to flee from the wrath to come? Is it not unutterably desirable to flee from the wrath to come? That's what Jesus shows as he contemplates the wrath of God that is about to come. And his soul is overwhelmed and his legs give way as he falls to the floor and he's sweating blood. To consider facing the wrath of God should do that to anyone or we have not considered it. And as Jesus prayed there in agony, his disciples are sleeping. Isn't that the part that we play? Doesn't that sum it up? Sleeping? And what will wake us up? And when the wrath comes, you cannot escape it. If you are to escape it, you must escape it now. But how? Well, Jesus on the ground not only prayed for the cup to be taken, he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. A love for his father. Love for you. Kept him to the plan. And so from that point he would be treated as a criminal. Because he had taken the cup, he was now identified as guilty from this point on. And and of course his arrest was a betrayal and his trial was a farce and his sentence was done by by a corrupt Judge who was just trying to satisfy the baying of a mob. But all, of the, all that went on from this signified that deeper reality that Jesus had now taken the cup. And so that now before the holy judgment seat of heaven, all the sins of mankind are counted against him. And the just sentence is issued that he would be crushed under the anger of God. He would stand before the fearful presence of the Lord, clothed in the sin of his people. And he would not flee to the rocks and he would not hide in the ground, but he would fall and he would be crushed until there was no more judgment remaining. To stop trusting in mere humans, or rather trust in Jesus, the one who is fully human and fully God, the one The only one, the only one able to face the wrath of God in your place. If you stop trying to hold on to do it yourself and if you trust him, he will bring you safely through and safely home. The only way to escape the wrath of God is to flee for refuge in the Son of God. And then on that day, on that day the Lord alone will be exalted. And see, Christ Jesus, who who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the, the very nature of a servant, humbling himself into human form, humbling himself to death, even to death on a cross. So therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, the Lord Jesus alone will be exalted. 
So we should trust him and walk in the light of him. What about us right now, right now in this moment? As we begin to consider our way to this table, like Christ, should we not also recoil from the coming wrath? Stop messing around with our pride and strutting around like the little idiots we so often are. Stop thinking too much of ourselves, but start thinking of ourselves less. Work on that taking to heart that all we have is a free gift of grace, so we return thanks to the giver. But above it all, looking to Jesus. Looking to the one who took the cup and went to the cross, so that all who trust in him will escape the judgment of the day of the Lord Almighty. Friends, come on. Let us walk in the light of the Lord Jesus. Let's have a moment of quiet.